you are listening to the City on a Hill Sermon Podcast. For more information about our church and to support this ministry, visit cityonahilldfw.com. Thank you. In the first service, I'm sick and tired of that thing. <laughs> we designed that for the series on Nehemiah that we're doing. And how many weeks did you say we've been doing this? Fifteen. Fifteen weeks. Uh, and uh, we're going to finish this thing out in the next few weeks. But yeah, it's about time for a new. What they we call that a sermon bump. Yep. That's what they call it these days. What's that like? The bump was a dance back from when I remember. That's what we did. It's a dance. It's a dance? Oh, okay. The sermon. <laughs> wow. I guess we better stop while we're behind, Woo. huh? Good morning. Good morning. I am uh, next Saturday. I am flying out to Detroit, Michigan. I'll spend the four or five days there in Detroit. I'm preaching at the church on Sunday morning that uh, we are helping to sponsor. They're just outside of Detroit with a retired police officer who's the pastor there. And then I get to, I, the ladies who have done the Fearless Series, they've already uh, done the Fearless Series in this little startup church, have asked to have lunch with me after church on Sunday morning. So that's kind of cool. They requested that, so it'll be great to hear the stories of their experience as they've gone through the Fearless Series for women. On Monday, I'm speaking to a group of pastors in the Detroit area that are interested in in this kind of ministry that we do, which is the Help, Hope, and Healing Hospital style of ministry. On Tuesday, I'm meeting with the denominational leaders in the state of Michigan, uh, the the, uh, director of all Baptist work in the state of Michigan, and I'm also going to have an opportunity to meet with some church planters that are going through training and equipping to talk to them about the hospital uh, style of ministry as they go out and, and, and start churches. And then Wednesday, I'm spending all day with the Covenant Eye ministry. Uh, I've written a book for them that's going to be released here within about the next six weeks, and we're talking about some things that we can partner with in ministry uh, around the country in the area of sexual purity and uh, helping people who who have been experienced sexual brokenness. And so it's going to be a great week, which means that next Sunday, Derek will be standing up by himself. This will actually be the very last Sunday that Derek and I do this together. Uh, we've been transitioning out, me out of this. You know, Derek took the senior pastor role uh, uh, last, uh, last year. Last yeah. year. Yeah. We've been passing this baton for years. And uh, it's kind of like Derek has been running and he's going, give me the freaking baton. And I go, well, not yet, not yet, not yet. And, and, <laughs> and so he's taken really the overall leadership. And I was still responsible for Sunday mornings. But now we're, I'm phasing out of that. And what I'm going to be doing from now on, Derek is going to start a series uh, that I'll let him tell you about this summer that is just really exciting. And I'm going to have the opportunity just to step in and, and, and when he needs some time off and, and in between series and that kind of thing. But we won't be actually doing this together. Uh, so I'll be, I'll be back up here June the 5th by myself because uh, he's uh, going to be uh, going to school, I guess, all, all that week. And then a couple of weeks in August and then something, probably some during the summer. So we're just going to begin doing a tag team uh, but that'll look different than this. And this has been coming. It's been, the time is there. And it's been a wonderful transition for me. Uh, God has given me just such a passion for what's going on nationally now and to be able to carry the, the, really the work that City on the Hill has been doing for over three decades and to carry it into, into other churches, in other uh, state conventions, and just all kinds of stuff. God's just opened some doors that uh, I, I couldn't have opened if I tried. And it's obvious that uh, he's done it. I was able to spend a week in, with Focus on the Family uh, a week ago last week to be able to speak at Focus, uh, to be able to interview their director of counseling for the Fearless Series for Men that I'm producing, going to Los Angeles to do some interview next month. June's going to be a very busy month, going to Los Angeles, then going to Atlanta, Georgia, and then Austin and in Houston, all interviewing individuals, professionals for the Fearless Series for Men. So good things are just, you know, happening and and. Derek has taken the reins here, and it's really interesting how this Nehemiah chapter 7 passage, if you would take your Bibles and turn to Nehemiah 7, uh, really fits right in line with just what's going on in the life of our church and in, and in my life. And so let's jump into this thing. I, I heard the story about a guy, and I, I'm, I'm sure that this is a mythological story. Por, uh, part of it couldn't probably wouldn't be true, but then part of it really would have to be true because it start, the story starts off with a guy who was lost and he stopped and asked directions. Now, we know that's myth. 
We know that's a myth, okay? Because guys don't stop and ask directions, right? right? So we know that part's probably, you know, absolutely the truth, okay? The rest of this may be mythological. And the guy that he'd asked for directions said, well, let me see now. You go three lights and you turn right. And then he goes, no, 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 you know, no. You go three lights and then turn left. You know you're in trouble already right there, okay? And then the third time he says, no, 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 no. Go four lights, turn right through the parking lot. And then he goes, no. I don't think that'll work either. And then he kind of rubbed his chin, and after a few moments, he said, Mr., I don't think you can get there from here. <laughs> and I, you felt that way before, haven't you? You know, I don't know that you can actually get here, there from here. You know where you are. You know where you want to be. And you got to somehow figure out what it's going to take to get you to where you need to be. And it's interesting that in chapter 7, Nehemiah faces that dilemma. The wall around the city of Jerusalem had been reconstructed. That had been his passion. That had been the vision that God had planted on him to go back to Jerusalem and rebuild the protecting wall around the city that had actually been in, uh, destroyed 150 years before. And he had overcome all kinds of obstacles, opposition from the inside, opposition from the outside. And then chapter 6, verse 15 tells us that they completed the construction on the wall in 52 days. Mm. Now, folks, this was not a small wall. They tell us that this was wall was thick enough that two chariots could go all the way around the city side by side. So this wall was tall, and it was very wide, and it had to be strong so that armies would have a difficult time knocking it down. So now Nehemiah is in that place of transition, as I, quite frankly, am in a place of transition. We are in a place of transition. He is in a place of transition. And God has so much to say to us today from this text. He is going to have to transition now from the building of the wall, which was the primary focus at first, now to building the people. Mm. And he had to do some things in order to make that transition. Because you see, from the beginning, when he had come back from Persia to lead the people, the Jewish people who had been, for 150 years, had been in dispersal out around the nations, when he, he came back to lead that that work, that had to be the focus. And that was the central focus for the first six chapters of Nehemiah, as a matter of fact, about overcoming the challenges and getting this wall of protection rebuilt. But even though for the first six chapters the wall has been the focus, the wall never was the ultimate goal from God's perspective. The rest of Nehemiah shows us from chapter on forward how the focus begins to shift from building the wall to its ultimate purpose of actually building the people of God. Because for 150 years, the Jews had been scattered among the nations, and now they were returning. The, the temple had been rebuilt. The, the city was being rebuilt. And now the wall of protection around the city against the enemies of Jerusalem was completed. And now it's time to focus on the next phase, and that's rebuilding the people. As I look over the last 37 years of my life since we started uh, this rodeo uh, in January of 1984, I'm struck by the similarities between what Nehemiah is facing and what this church has looked through for almost four decades now and is even doing once again here. We began, by the way, is there anyone here that was here in 1984 when we started no one in this service. There's a couple, couple back here. Okay, a few back here. Okay, that's right. Okay, oh, there's a few. Yeah, yeah, the Thompsons. Mangano's yeah. came in pretty soon after that. And, Ralph but over we here. Didn't, we didn't really want them. Ralph Wimp. Ralph. Is, is Ralph here? He's still here. Yep. Man, Ralph, he, he hangs on, man. I'm, he's like a snapping turtle. Once he gets a bite on you, you know, he doesn't let go. And we both are, and that's how both of us survived 37 years together. But over 37 years, we started in that little building over on John T. White, we moved into a school for a few years, and oh, that was a nightmare. It's the hardest thing in the world to hold church in a school where you got to pack everything up and you got to set up every Sunday. But we did that because we'd bought some land here. We'd bought the seven and a half acres here, and we were getting ready to build. And in 1992, we actually completed the construction of this one building and moved in here. In 1995, we built the gymnasium building. Uh, and then somewhere in there, we bought more land. We bought the other seven and a half acres, and so we, all the way down to Interstate 30. So we have all 15 acres here. In 2011, we completed the construction of the 30,000-square-foot children's facility over there. And so in, during all of that time, while we were buying land and building buildings as the ministry expanded, we were also building 
buildings in Nakuru, Kenya. Many of you don't know this, but we actually financed and built three buildings for Compassion Projects, Compassion International, in Nakuru, Kenya, which is in the Rift Valley of Kenya, about four hours outside of Nairobi. And because of our involvement with Compassion International through the years of sponsoring children uh, and and. Uh, they didn't have, oftentimes didn't have places to meet. They were meeting out under trees. And, and so we partnered with the Kenyans there in those compassion projects and built three different buildings in three different compassion projects. So all of that kind of stuff was going on. And it hasn't just been about here. But we're able to say today, and this is giving glory to God, that in all of those years and over all of that stuff, we are debt-free. We owe nobody anything. Amen. And Amen. that... That is on top of purchasing Refuge Ranch two years ago, 106 acres in the beautiful piney woods of, of East Texas as a place of refuge, a place for our kids to go. And Derek's got a great announcement for you at the end of this. It's just been an incredible experience. And that was very difficult to do, just as building the wall, obviously, was very difficult. But now, but the real purpose of all of that, folks, the real purpose of that was not to build buildings, the real purpose of it all was to build people. Because God's vision never really was about building buildings. It wasn't about buying land. Those are all just mechanics in order to provide the structure where the lives of people can be built. And so it's always been about the gospel of Jesus Christ. The gospel of Jesus Christ is the only hope. Church buildings are not a hope. They are a tool, and when they are used to promote the gospel of Jesus Christ, then they have meaning and they have value. When they are used to help people gather together and experience real-life transformation, then they have meaning and purpose. But they, without that, they are useless in and of themselves. And so, Nehemiah has come where now he's completed the building project. The structure is in place, and now he has to go on to the real purpose of God, which was to call his people back to the city of Jerusalem to rebuild the people because it was going to be out of these people that the Christ, the Savior of the world, was going to be born, right? The Lord Jesus, about 400 years after this time, was when Jesus was going to be born. And so the question is, what did Nehemiah do to get there from here? What did he need to make this transition into what really matters, which is building people? And we're going to talk about three things out of the text in chapter 7 this morning. First of all, he needed good leadership. In verses 1 through 3, he talks about that leadership. And one of the things that I've learned in over 40 years of ministry is that leadership is everything. Leadership, you've got to have followership, but if you don't have good leadership, you don't have anything. There are good leaders and there are bad leaders. And good leaders make things move forward and bad leaders get in the way of things moving forward. We discovered this in our freedom group ministry, haven't we? You can take a bad facilitator of a small group and have world-class material and you're going to have a bad group. Yep. You can take mediocre material and have a good facilitator, and you can have a great group. Because ultimately, it depends upon the quality of leadership. And in fact, the people of God were in the situation they were at this time because leaders were bad. Kings led them away from the Lord. Their prophets did not call them back. And so God allowed the Babylonians to come in in 587 B.C. and literally sack the city of Jerusalem, tear down the protecting wall, and carry God's people off into diaspora, into captivity. But now God said, now it's time to regather my people, and we're going to have to rebuild my people. And so after the physical building project, then the real work is going to begin in rebuilding the people. So up to this point... Nehemiah pretty much was the point man. I mean, the first six chapters of Nehemiah is really just pretty much about Nehemiah. I mean, it's 52 days that it took him to rebuild the wall, but the first six chapters is pretty much about that 52 days. And Nehemiah is the one that seems off the spotlight is always on because he was the driving force. He was the visionary. He was the one that God had given this vision to uh, and planted it in his heart. And, and he was the one that was pushing the people to get the word done, and God gave him favor. So in the beginning phase of building the wall and opposing enemies, it pretty much mostly fell upon him. The, the weight was upon him. But that was only short term for 52 days. Now the focus is going to be off the wall for the rest of the book of Nehemiah, and the focus is also going to be off of Nehemiah. 
Because now that bigger vision of building the people was going to take so much more than Nehemiah. He had to broaden the leadership. He had to lengthen the leadership. He had to appoint people and give them authority to do work that one person could not do. So that's what he's doing in chapter 7. But he's not just choosing bodies to fill slots. There are specific qualities that Nehemiah knew these people needed to have. And we're going to talk about three of them uh, right now. I'm going to talk about two, and then I'm going to turn it over to Derek, and he'll take us for the rest of the way. The first one that Nehemiah obviously values and needed, and he knew he needed, was loyalty in these people that were going to be put in these positions. In verses 1 and 2, it says that he appointed gatekeepers. Gatekeepers were those that were going to have the keys to the city, basically. And they were the ones that were going to decide who gets in the city and who doesn't. And so these needed to be people that were very trustworthy, people that were very loyal. Because if they weren't, they could just open the door to enemies and enemies could come into the city. It says that he's appointed singers and Levites. He gave them specific responsibilities. And their work was primarily in the temple. And so they were to lead the people in a godly way, in a faithful way, uh, in the worship of the temple, in the offering of sacrifices, in the times of prayer, and in the reading of the Word. So these people, he, they were very, very important people. He was turning this over and saying, now you are in charge of this very, very important job. They needed to be loyal people. But in verse 2, he mentions two men by name very specifically, who are put in charge of the entire city of Jerusalem. Now, up to this point, Nehemiah's kind of pretty much been it, okay? He's had to do it all. But now he's turning that over to other men. One of them is a guy by the name of Hanani, I have the hardest time saying his name, uh, who was Nehemiah's brother, as a matter of fact, and the other was Hananiah. So, Hanani and Hananiah. Now, most scholars agree that Hanani was appointed to be the civil leader over the city. In other words, he was kind of the one that was going to coordinate the city government. You might say he was kind of like a mayor over the city. He was responsible for the civil procedure that was going on in the city, which obviously is a very, very important position. Hananiah, though, was put in charge of the city's defense forces. Because even though they had the wall, if the enemies of Israel came against them, they had to have qualified, ready, prepared defense forces within the walls of the city in order to expel the enemies. And so, obviously, Hanani, who was going to be the civil leader of the city, and Hananiah, who was going to be over the civil defense forces, these are two very, very important positions. Now, my first question is, going back to Hanani, who was... Nehemiah's brother, why would he include his brother to be, let's say, the mayor of Jerusalem? I mean, doesn't this look a little bit like nepotism? I mean, okay, so now I've gotten to where I'm the big dog, and so now I'm going to reward all my family members, and we're all going to line our pockets. Well, that totally goes against the character of Nehemiah that we've seen so far. He had the power to buy land and scalp the people. He had the power to take the king's uh, money for the food allowance. He didn't do that. He, he expended all of his own so that the people would not have further burdens on them. So to, to practice nepotism at this point is totally opposite of the character that we've already observed of this man. Why then would he appoint his brother into this very important position? Because Nehemiah knew he could trust his brother more than anybody in the city. I'm convinced that was it. They had grown up together. They'd had experiences together. He knew his brother's character. He knew his brother's gifts and his skills. And more than anything, he needed somebody who had the skills of administration, but also somebody that he could trust. Because you see, at this point, Nehemiah could not risk appointing a renegade leader that was going to divide the people and try to elevate themselves up into a position of even higher power. And Nehemiah was convinced his brother, Hanani, would not do that. Now, let me say something to you. Folks, if you are ever given a role in leadership in, any fa- in your business, in your work, in your community, in your church, in any capacity, no matter what it is, understand that when you are given that role and given that position, it is not an invitation 
to undermine the leadership above you. Mm. In fact, what it is, is a great position of trust and responsibility. If you agree with those above you, you go to them. If you cannot resolve it, then you step down, but don't ever become a divisive person when you have been trusted with a role. I learned this lesson early on in young adulthood. I was not taught this kind of stuff as a child. So this had to come from God because I wasn't smart enough to figure it out. When Laura and I got married in 1979, one week after we got married, we started on the staff of First Baptist Church in Comanche, Texas. I had completed my first year of seminary. We got married that summer. We had two more years of seminary. So we had one week that we have lived together in 43 years that we were not actually in the ministry. One week of our entire 43 years, we have been in the ministry. This was at the First Baptist Church of Comanche. I was the youth pastor, and we kind of had the, ch- the town youth group because we were the biggest church. We had more resources. So the Methodist kids, everybody else, in the ch- they came to all of our events. I had a youth group of 100, 150 kids, and they probably only had 300 in the entire high school. And so it was, a, you know, it was really a cool thing. And, and I think they thought I was God's gift or whatever, just simply because I could keep their kids off the streets at night and keep them out of the backwoods. I don't know if we always accomplished that, but you know what I'm talking about. And so parents loved me. Maybe you parachuted cats every and now I and I did again. parachute a cat out of an airplane one time, but that's, that's another story. <laughs> we, <laughs> that's a real deal. We actually did that. You told that from the stage before. I was was flying. (laughs) I was learning to fly, and I had a kid in my youth group at 18, already had his license, so we took a cat up and parachuted him out of the plane one time. We built this great big parachute. It was wonderful. It was a work of wonder, and the cat came down. He was totally safe. We knew it wouldn't hurt him, but he came down like this. Of course, you knew he was totally safe. I was the hero of Erath County as a youth pastor for doing that. Today, I would have lost my job. Lost I probably job. should have lost You've that been, one. Been on the news and yeah. everything. <laughs> but the pastor of the church at that time was in his older years. He was headed toward retirement. He was coasting till the day. There were just all kinds of problems. His energy was gone. And people would come to me, and they would ask me questions about him. And they'd ask those questions in such a way that I knew they wanted me to join with them in saying negative things about this pastor. Try to draw me in. And there was something in me that said, I believe it was the Holy Spirit, who said to me, James, don't participate in that. Don't become a part of that. Do not let it happen. Because this man, regardless of whether he, what he's doing now, he's the one that puts you into this position of trust. That's right. He has given you an opportunity. Don't you dare use that opportunity to undercut him. And so I refused to do it. I refused to join in. I had my own feelings about what was going on in his life. I shared them with him, but I refused to share with the people. There were even some in that church that what they really wanted is when I graduated from seminary, they wanted to get rid of him and, and make me become the pastor of the First Baptist Church of Comanche, Texas. And I just said, you know what? I'm going to have anything to do that. So Laura and I, we headed to Fort Lauderdale, Florida right when I graduated in 1981 and were there for three years before we came back here in 1984. You see, here's the point. No matter what level it is, when someone puts you into a position of trust, don't you dare use that as an opportunity to undermine that individual who trusted you. Years ago, in the corporate world, typically the person with the best skill set, the person with the best resume would get the job. And then a couple of decades later, as I read leadership books, there began to be a shift where Corporations had come to understand that didn't always work out well for them because the person that was the most skilled didn't always have the best character. And so companies then began to hire on the basis of character. They knew that there had to be a skill set to begin with, but that was what was most important. We want to have a person of character because they came to understand we can train you for skill. We cannot train you for character. Character must be in place, and then we will train you for the skill set. And so, I, so remember that when you're given, you're entrusted with any form of, of leadership. Nehemiah knew, I need somebody that is not going to violate this position that, with which he has been entrusted. The second is faithfulness. Verse 2, it's, it mentions again Hananiah, who's going to be over the defense of the city. And it says of Hananiah, he was more faithful than many. It doesn't say he was the most faithful person in the city, but he was more faithful than many. So obviously, Nehemiah is doing this cost-benefit analysis. He had a skill set to do the job, 
And there might have been others who had a better skill set for the job, but they didn't have the character that Hananiah had. So he took this balance. He's got the skill set, but he's also got the faithfulness. He's got the character, and so he got the job. Somewhere along the way, Hananiah had established a track record that Nehemiah had been able to observe that he knew if I put this person over this important job of making sure that the defense forces of the city are ready to defend the city, he will do everything in his power to get it done. And he'd watched him in other jobs. Jesus established that principle in Luke 16.10 when he said, He who is faithful with a few things will be faithful with many. He who is not faithful in a few things, you give him a bunch of things, he's not going to be any more faithful with those. So Hananiah had been proven faithful in other places, so he gets this job. I love to read the stories of the old mountain men back in the early days of, uh, of westward expansion of, of America as, as uh, the, the pilgrims kind of went all the way off to the, all the way to the west coast. I, I believe I was born 150 years too late. I would have loved to have been just one of those mountain men just living out there, you know, living off the land and all that kind of stuff, probably for a couple of days at least. Yeah. And I said, hey, give me my, give me my white-collar job back yeah, yeah. real quick. But the way that they said things, and I, I've just finished a five-book series about mountain men and, and that expansion of the West. It covered about 40 or 50 years, a, a couple of generations. And the way they said things, when they came up, you, nobody was trusted until they'd proven themselves. Until you proved yourself, you were a greenhorn. Because everything out there wanted to kill you. All the animals wanted to kill you. Hunger wanted to kill you. Thirst wanted to kill you. And the Native Americans that were hacked off because people were coming into the land, they wanted to kill you. And so they didn't trust themselves to individuals until they had proven that they could get the job done. But once you did, they would say things like, you'll do. <laughs> now, that may sound very understated, but from an old mountain man that had been out there and knew what it took to survive, if he looked at you and said, you know what, you'll do. That was a vote of confidence. Louis Lamore liked to say it this way. He's a man to ride the river with. I love that. You're going to go out there and you want somebody on your back when you're riding the river and the bears are there and the Native Americans may be shooting arrows at you. You want to ride the river with this guy. But they didn't give you that until you had proven you were a man to ride the river with. They didn't give you that until you were proven that you would do. So, here's what Nehemiah is doing. He has characteristics of leadership that it's going to take to carry this thing all the way to the next step. To where, now we're not just building a wall. Now we're really taking on the real task. And that is we have to rebuild a people who have been scattered for 150 years. They're God's people. They're the people out of which the Christ, the Savior of the world, is going to be born. And Nehemiah needed others to join with him in that process. So, so he's selecting those that will carry this work. They are trustworthy. They're faithful. And then finally, they are spiritual. Notice it says in verse 2 that not only was Hananiah faithful, he was a more God-fearing man than many. Uh, I, we've seen this word a lot, fear, over the last, I feel like, few months at least. And, uh, and I want to remind you every time we come to it, at least in this context, that it's a word that means something like piety or reverence. It's not a word that means timidity or cowardice. You know, the New Testament, uh, Paul to Timothy, where he says, God has not given us a spirit of fear. That is a different word. It's a different understanding than what this Hebrew word indicates, which is piety or reverence. It means a reverence for God. It means a respectful posture towards God, a reverential love for Him and His truth. And so, when considering whether or not to make someone a leader, like Hananiah, this is a no-brainer. <laughs> that he is a God-fearing man more than many is a no-brainer. And it's true for us as well. If, if you are looking for someone to find, to put into a position of leadership, and you find someone with a respectful love for God, look no further. That's right. Right? Go after them. This is something that, that quite frankly, churches do uh, pretty poorly. Uh, choosing and hiring leaders is, for the most part, very difficult because it requires being able to discern a love for God in that individual, but also a particular skill set that 
Otherwise, you wouldn't be interested in that person, right? There has to be something of a skill that makes you say, you know, they would be really good at being a leader in whatever, fill in the blank. So both of these are important, a love for God and a skill. And, and it's a very fine line to walk mm. on that a lot of churches honestly fail pretty miserably at. There's usually one of two things that churches will do. Either A, they will settle for the wrong kind of success. <laughs> we see this a lot, especially in bigger churches. Uh, you'll have, on the one hand, pastors that will find a guy who's super successful. He has a ton of leadership skills. He's got tons of marketplace experience. And they think, you know, if we had a guy like him with his expertise on our staff, we'd be unstoppable. We'll make him an elder. We're we'll not even sure he knows Jesus. Yeah. But we'll make him an yeah, elder. Yeah, he's going to be a leader. <laughs> Put him in the position. Yeah, and they never They'll make a fine elder. They never look at the quality of love for the Lord or the character or their integrity or whether or not they're, they're God fearing at all. They just. They're successful, so throw them in the ring and let them, <laughs> let them do the work. And what ends up happening is they crash and burn, and on the way down, they take a lot of good people with them. That's right. The other mistake you'll see churches make, on the other hand, is they'll settle for the right kind of heart, but then fail to train. So you'll, you'll find somebody that has a great character and great integrity and loves the Lord. And wow, what, a, what an incredible example of a God-fearing individual. And they have no actual skill. And they just <laughs> throw them in there and they don't train them and then fire them when they didn't perform and wonder what happened. Everybody says, he sure did love Jesus, but he didn't do the job well. He didn't do well. the job well. And then what do they do in the wake of that? They go, you know, we need to get a guy with great marketplace skill. And they go hire the first one. And it's just this weird cycle. Yeah. You'll hear churches say this a lot, very well-meaning. God doesn't call the equipped, he equips the called. Now, to be clear, I believe that. I believe that wholeheartedly. What's, what's problematic, though, is when churches use that phrase as sort of a mantra as just to throw a person who's called to do a job into the ring and then never work another second to equip the person to do the job. They just expect the Holy Spirit, like, well, God's going to, you know, equip the called, so the Holy Spirit's going to train them. You got six weeks figured out how to do this yeah, job. Yeah, exactly. We're going to fire you. And it's like the church, <laughs> the church fails to remember that, yes, God does equip the called, but how does he equip the called? Usually through other people, yes. like, I don't know, you. <laughs> Right. It's not an excuse to not train. So both of these are important, but the fear of God is such an integral part. What does it look like to be a God-fearing individual? Let me give you a few, a few things that this looks like. Number one, they stand out in a crowd. Uh, it's true for Hananiah. He stood out. He was God-fearing more than many. Nehemiah figured that out just by observing him. And in my experience as well, people who fear God, the fear of God is usually a very, uh, you, you can sense it very, very in, in a very real sense. It, it's just, it comes out in every aspect of their life. In every decision they make, there is usually a, a reverence, a respect for God in everything they do. Very, very important. B, let me, let me, yeah. One of the ways I've discovered in 40 years of ministry that to figure out if someone has reverence for God or don't, when they say, well, I know the Bible says this, but I'm going <laughs> to. Yeah. No reverence for God. No reverence for God. No reverence for God. Yeah, I know the Bible says that, but I'm going to go ahead and do what I want to do. Okay, well, okay. Yeah. you're disqualified. Good luck. Uh, yeah, B, they, <laughs> they see their service as to God and not to men. They see their service as to God, not to men. God-fearing people aren't trying to impress others. They don't need approval for men to keep going. They see their job as important because God called them to do it, not because they're trying to impress people or gain accolades from this. And I mentioned this first service. I think two really great examples of that on staff, there are several, uh, but two that come to mind are uh, our worship pastor, Kelsey Barker, and, and our children's pastor, Emma Cunnington, uh, both of which do a, a number of things throughout the week and even on Sunday mornings that no one ever sees them doing. They have no idea that those are responsibilities that fall in their, in their domain. And they do them, they do them with, with cheerfulness and they never get a pat on the back from anyone because they're not trying to impress anyone with it. They're not trying to get accolades from it. They see their job as unto the Lord. Paul, Emma has another motivation. She does. Because she, she doesn't do it, we'll deport her back to England. To England, yeah, right. <laughs> Oh, Chris back there just shaking his head. I bet, I bet there are days when they go, you know what? I wish they would deport me back to England. <laughs> Life would be better there. These Americans These are so Americans weird. These Americans are so weird. Yeah. Um, there is a, a great passage from the Apostle Paul in Colossians 3, 23, 24. He says this, whatever you do, work heartily as for the Lord and not for men, 
knowing that from the Lord you will receive the inheritance as your reward, you are serving the Lord Christ. Amen. Leaders, understand this. In whatever position that you are in, you are in that position because God has put you there. And you are ultimately serving Him, not someone else. And so you do your work heartily as unto Him. Three, God-fearing people understand the seriousness of abusing leadership. Now, this is one that I think probably more than any churches have failed at. Uh, More and more, we see people coming to us from past experiences of abuse, woundedness, hurt, manipulation from other churches, and either that or they're going away from the church entirely and into deconstruction where they're not even sure if they're, they're Christians anymore because they've experienced abuse uh, under a, a leader in the church that was obviously unexpected and unrepented of. And what's worse is when uh, someone experiences that kind of abuse from a leader and then there's no there's no attempt at justice. There's just a cover-up. We've had that happen a lot as well, where someone perpetrated abuse, and then rather than holding them accountable, it just sort of got swept under the rug. Not here. Not here. Oh, yeah. is it we? No, no, no. no. Wait, no. Well, we receive these people <laughs> yeah, absolutely. in. Absolutely. Yeah, absolutely. and because they're hurting, and we have a, a ministry for hurting folks. <clears throat> this is what happened, if I'm just being completely honest, I didn't say this for ser- service. Um, this is what happened at uh, James and I's seminary, his alma mater, and I'm still there at, at Southwestern Baptist Theological Seminary, the former president, uh, someone who did a lot of great things for the kingdom, a lot of great things for uh, ministry, uh, ultimately was, was responsible for things that he didn't take responsibility for, and right. swept them under the rug, and he got found out. And the cover-up got him. And the cover-up got him, as it should have. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's just, it, it reveals a lack of God-fearingness in an individual. When, when the seriousness of abusing leadership is not properly understood. And here's what it ultimately, I think, what it ultimately reveals is, is it reveals that that leader forgot who they were. They forgot their identity in the grand scheme of things. Yeah. We call ourselves as pastors, uh, we refer to ourselves as under-shepherds. We're not the shepherd. We're the under-shepherd. We're the lowly people that the shepherd gives charge to manage or steward while he's away. But, but what happens is when leaders begin to abuse leadership, it reveals that they no longer see themselves as under-shepherds. They see themselves as owners. You're not the owners. We are not the owners. We're simply managers. Christ is the owner. Yeah. And we will give an account one day to how we managed what has been entrusted to us. And every one of lay people is putting in a position of leadership. You will give an account to Christ. Absolutely. Ultimately not us. No. But to Jesus. Absolutely. So understand that influencers are in the building business. We're in the construction build business. We build people. We build people first uh, through godly leadership. It's, it's a necessary thing to have in order for uh, the kingdom to operate in the way that it was designed to operate. Nehemiah needed godly leaders. Second, he needed willing workers. Leaders are necessary, but if you don't have any willing workers to do the work that leaders appoint, you have no point of having leaders. There's no one to follow there's no one to lead, then leaders are useless. And this is the problem that Nehemiah faced. The wall had been rebuilt. Leaders had been appointed. The, the problem they faced was that there were very few people actually living in the city, right? Ever since the city had been sacked by Babylon over 150 years ago, wasn't a whole lot of traction in the real estate market. <laughs> wasn't exactly a booming state. To buy right? your house, you had to first rebuild it. Rebuild it, it exactly. <laughs> It didn't make sense to live there. There was rubble everywhere. There was no defense system because there was no wall. And so it made the entire city vulnerable. And, and so Nehemiah understood and the leadership understood that in order for commerce to be revived, the city needed to be defended. And in order for the city to be defended, they needed people there. And so verse 5, uh, Nehemiah takes a census. And the rest of chapter 7 really fleshes out the state of that, where people are living, where they're not living, who's even here still, so on and so forth. We get all the way to chapter 11, and uh, verse 1 tells us, verses 1 and 2 actually tell us how this problem eventually gets worked out. Verse 1 says that first, uh, the first group of people that moved back into the city were actually the godly leaders that Nehemiah appointed. And this is, again, just a great leadership principle. Uh, Leaders, if you are asking people to do something that you yourself are not willing to do, probably shouldn't ask them to do it. Uh, either that or, or you shouldn't be a leader. Uh, this shows the character of these individuals, that these really were the real deal that Nehemiah had selected. Verse 2 tells us, though, that it wasn't just the leaders that moved back, that there was a group of people who, after casting lots, 
had been selected to move back to the city as well, and the people blessed them for it. It seems a little forced, casting lots, uh, but, but really this was a way of volunteering, a way of, of being selected in the group to then go and willingly move, uproot your family, uproot your job, have a, a total uh, change of scenery. It was a huge risk, but it was one that the people recognized was necessary in order for there to be success. If Jerusalem was going to be rebuilt into its former glory, it needed people. They, yeah. they had done the hard work of rebuilding the wall, and that, that was over. That time was over. Now the focus was economy. And so they needed to build back better. It just struck right? me. A, a modern day... Don't email me. All right. Yeah. <laughs> we were going to name this ser- whole series Build Back Better, and he chickened out on me. I thought it was a great series title. You know, but th- how this... A modern day illustration of this is where an inner city has completely just been destroyed. People have moved out. And there's a desire for urban renewal. And the leaders, the city councilmen, the mayors, they move in first. Yes. And then there are volunteers who say, we'll move in. Yep. Rather than all of you folks, y'all come in there and we're going to give you the money. You're going to have urban renewal while I'm living out in my 15-bedroom, you know, mansion out in, out in the burbs. Nehemiah moved into the ghetto first. He moved into the urban place first to set the example. And what a godly example. You know, for all the, like, recent trouble, I guess, that I don't know if you you may not follow. Uh, Tim Keller, real well-known writer, pastor, um, you know, some things that I I agree with, some things I disagree with, but one of the things that was really interesting about Keller, yeah, right, (laughs) he's a, he, he is a pastor in New York City, and uh, this was something that his church did very well for a very long time. I don't know if they still do this or not, but leaders in that church find the most uh, un-Christian and violent areas in the city, and they move there. And they start Bible studies. It's a really like radical mission that is really pretty amazing. And the transformation that's taken place there through the ministry efforts of uh, Redeemer is, is really Because pretty... people know you're real. Yeah. You know, when you see a Christian leader, just mark this off, who's living way above the lifestyle of the average person oh, of the yeah. church, there's a problem there. Yep. There is a problem there. There is a character issue there. Agreed. And so you just tick off those people that you know that are living the high lifestyle, preaching all of that stuff, but they're living so far above the people, there is a spiritual problem. You know, you can have great leadership, you can have clear vision, you can have a compelling mission, but if you don't have people who buy into it and are willing to work and do the work of the ministry or of the mission, you don't have much. And I will say, we have that here at City on a Hill. Uh, We have people that get here at 7 a.m. on Sunday mornings every Sunday to make sure that lights are on, that the sound system's on, that the systems are running, the band shows up at 7.30, they run through the entire service for the morning to make sure there are no uh, hitches at all. There are people that begin showing up. It's it's not like Beauty and the Beast. The food out there doesn't just appear, right? Uh, The plates don't just like march out there, right? Uh, People actually work to put it together. There are people here, and you likely know none of them by name. You just come in and get your cup of coffee and your bagel and say, boy, this is so good. Yeah, and they're here. They're here because they buy into it and they do it. Yeah, absolutely. Amen. There are a number of people who facilitate freedom groups every Wednesday night here. Every Wednesday night, they show up, and they take in hurting individuals, and they lead them through the healing process centered on the gospel. And again, very few of them will ever be known by the vast majority of you. They will never make it onto the big stage. They don't want to be on the big stage. They're not looking to come onto the stage. They would rather die, honestly, than be in front of a large group of people. But put them in a room with eight others that are hurting, and magic happens. And magic happens. That's right. And no one knows who they are because we have willing workers here. We have something that is really amazing. It's the body of Jesus doing the work that the body of Jesus was was designed to do. There are many jobs. There are many roles in the body of Christ. None of them are useless. Everything matters. Everyone matters in the kingdom. Nehemiah needed godly leaders. He needed willing workers. And last, we'll end here, uh, they needed giving hearts. So Nehemiah had the initial supplies, 
uh, Artaxerxes had given that, that to him. But in order to make commerce work, in order to get things going, they needed to invest and inject money and, and supplies into it to get it moving. And there were giving hearts among them who made it happen. There's no appeal for money. There's no fundraising campaign or building campaign. They just gave. Now, you have to flip a lot through chapter 7 because there's 73 verses total in that chapter. Uh, but in verses 70 through 72, we're told that there were several heads of families, all of which gave sizable amounts to this cause. They were never asked. They were never pressured. They just bought into what was happening, and they gave in order for the mission to work. And, and remember, the economic condition, condition was really not good. We've talked about that several times, but that didn't matter. They were willing to do what they thought was necessary because they had such buy-in to it. And really, they were just following what God was saying all along anyways, right? Proverbs 3, 9 says, Honor the Lord from your wealth and from the first of all of your produce. Paul in the New Testament says it this way in 2 Corinthians 9, 7. He says, Each one must give as he has decided in his heart, not reluctantly or under compulsion, for God loves a cheerful giver. And you may have heard this before, but that Greek word for cheerful, it's the word from which we get our word hilarious. God loves a hilarious giver. This is so much fun giving. Yes, it's so good. Right, exactly. This is a conviction uh, that, that James has led with for 37 years. It's a conviction that has been passed on to me uh, for absolute certain to never be a fundraiser here. Uh, there are a lot of roles that I will serve in here as your pastor. There's a lot of things I'm willing to do. Fundraising is just not one of them. I'm That's not right. interested in getting up here and making some manipulative, emotional story about why we need you to give an extra over and beyond so we can fund some new thing. I'm not interested in that. If, if, if we are always, churches that are always calling for money, like every Sunday, it reveals one of two things. Either A, they are outspending the money that is coming in, they've mismanaged it, or B, the people don't buy into the vision and they're not motivated to support it. Both of those are bad things. Both of those are very bad things. Let me be just plain with you for the last part of our time here. Uh, just a moment of just utter transparency towards you. Uh, I am literally overwhelmed at the generosity of this church. I'm blown away by it. I'm blown away by it. It is remarkable to me the kind of generosity that God has put on the hearts of his people here. I'm continually surprised by the number of people who, who come forward, who step forward without being asked, without being pressured, and just say, I want to give back to what City on a Hill is doing. It's humbling. And I want to say to you, first and foremost, thank you. Uh, you inspire me. You inspire Amen. all of us. It's a really amazing thing. And, and I want to share with you a, um, a dream realized, if you will, uh, as we close our time here. Many of you know, as James mentioned, a few years ago, we purchased a ranch, 106, 7 acres? 106 acres. Uh, in Elkhart, Texas, just outside of Palestine, called Refuge Ranch. We have spent the last few years uh, really working very, very hard. There's a team of people um, that have have been really a driving force behind it, but many of you have spent time down there as well helping. And it's just been really remarkable seeing the place grow and develop and thrive into a really dream destination that it is now. And By the end of this first year, we will have capacity for 100 people, 100, 100 people. beds yeah. which is, at Refuge Which Ranch. is fantastic, yeah. Um, in 2020, we obviously entered into a, a tumultuous year. A lot of things shut down. Uh, one of which was every camp, every kids camp, every youth camp. And uh, Refuge Ranch gave us the, the ability to have camp that year with our kids, uh, which was awesome. Um, only a few people got COVID as a result of it. Uh, it was worth it. Uh, it was fantastic. The kids, the kids needed a break from just the monotony yeah. of that year. And it was really amazing to see that happen. And, and we were able to do it at a fraction of the cost. Uh, regular kids camps are anywhere between $375 and $500, depending on where you go. Uh, we charged, I think, $100, um, maybe $120 or something. I, I don't remember. Not much. It was like a fraction of to what cover electricity whole, and food. Yeah, all that stuff. Uh, food, rec games, shirts, the whole nine yards. Um, we met as a, an elder body uh, last Monday, and, and we were just talking about the, the, uh, just the hum, 
the humbled nature that we find ourselves in when we think about how this church has, has given. Uh, last year, we overgave the budget by a, a, a tremendous amount. We raised the budget by, I think, $100,000 this past year because we realized the world's opening back up. People are coming back to church, and we wanted to be able to fund some of the things that we wanted to do, and we are currently overgiving it right now. And, and so uh, one of the things that, that we talked about and agreed upon was that we have allocated money uh, that has been over and above back to the kids and student ministries as a way of saying thank you to especially our young families who have young children. And uh, this year, at least for 2022 and for every year that we are able to, kids camp and middle school camp and high school camp will be free. Totally free. Yeah. Which opens a lot of doors. It that does. means families that have three and four kids, it makes it, but it also opens the door as Derek's going to say, to invite kids to come. Yes. That's the things that we... So, so let me just give you... These are the two kind of pastoral advices I will give you. Number one is send your kids. Right. Send your kids to camp. May, have them pack a bag and get them here the morning they leave and get them on the bus, and that's all you got to do. You don't have to pay for anything. They'll get a camp shirt. They'll have the food taken care of. The rec games will be taken care of. The whole nine yards, all done. Just get them here. They get to hang out with four donkeys, a llama, a bunch of ducks. A bunch of deer. It's going to be amazing. Deer, and we have two lakes. Yes. The second thing is use this ev evangelistically as an opportunity to invite other people. If you have a, a friend, a family friend, that is not churched, that isn't really plugged in anywhere, and they have kids, reach out to them and say, hey, our church really wants to just love and appreciate young families. They're doing all their camps this year for free. Send, send your, your son or your daughter, and then come with me to church and, and meet these people. It's a great, use this as an opportunity to share just a practical way of loving them with the love of Christ. Mm. It's so exciting. We're very, very excited. Like James said, we have, uh, we'll have 100 beds available, so we will pack that thing out. There is obviously a limit. We can't take just as many as we want, uh, but we will address that problem as it comes. Uh, if we have to do, you know, I, I don't know. I don't know what that will look we'll like. We'll put but up some tents. We'll put some tents up. Uh, get Let your, you sleep in it. <laughs> get your kids signed up. Get them signed up. And That's thank right. you. You are the ones that make this happen. You're Amen. the ones that make this possible. So give yourselves a round of applause. I, I, Amen. Yeah. This is what influencers do. We build people. We build leaders. We inspire willing workers. We rejoice when giving hearts step forward and give out of gratitude. Yeah. And, and we've seen that happen here. Pray with me. Father, thank you for your kindness towards us and, and your gift of grace, and, and thank you for just the generosity that we see here on a week-to-week -week basis in, in your people. Uh, help us, God, uh, always be reminded that we are stewards, that we are managers, that we are not owners, that you are the owner, that you are the king, that you give the, the commands that, Lord, we are, are grateful just to be entrusted with with. Uh, what little you give us, God. We are um, honored. I pray that uh, you would use these camps this summer to really impact families in a way that is just only you can do, and that we would just step out of the way and, and, uh, and watch your spirit work. We love you, and we thank you in Jesus' name. Amen. God bless you. See you next time.